Okay, we're up to page 32, 33. Uh, let's get last time with uh, something to think about. That the Babylonian Talmud says, Toshma, come in here. The Sun Talmud and the Zohar for the say come and see and the Haggadah says say Lamat go out and learn now one way to explain it is this we're talking about appreciating Torah Toshima is when someone's going to give an explanation of a, of a Torah idea. Say, Tochamim, Tochavim. Say, Umad also is a question of understanding a Torah idea. Now, one, one element, and maybe, maybe you could generalize this to the whole, but at least one element in Torah understanding is to see the world in the light of the Torah to read the Torah as a way of viewing the world and understanding the question then is how far can we do that to what depth can we do it to what extent can we do it how widely can we apply the Torah <coughs> to understanding the world and the thought here is that that depends upon our condition and the world's condition the Torah will penetrate just so far. And the better its conditions, it will penetrate even further, and the, and the worse conditions will penetrate less. The world becomes more opaque or more transparent, covering God's presence more or revealing God's presence more. It's going to vary from time to time. In Babylonia, the invitation to apply a Torah thought was Toshma, come and see. Did I come and hear? You can hear even when it's dark. Verbal communication works even when the person, when there's no light. And it's not an accident. The verse says, The God placed me in the dark. And Chazal says, That is Torah so you have a connection the verse says you place in the dark and that's Golos Bobo and the invitation to appreciate our idea in Bobo is Toshma come in here but hearing is what you can do when it's dark and you can't see that means that in the Jerusalem Talmud and in the Zohar when it says to come and see that's because it's light that means that the Torah penetrates a much greater depth when it's dark you don't even see the one from whom the speech is coming your contact is indirect you hear the speech whereas when you see you see him seeing is related to him speech is something he produces speech is like a very fast letter comes instantaneously but what you hear is sound 
If you push it even further, at Sinai, it says, the people saw the voices. That's an astonishing penetration. Here's something which you can't see at all. In normal life, light does not penetrate to voices. The light doesn't affect voices. Voices can only be heard. They got to a position where the light penetrated so far, as far as I'll comment, growing this initially. They saw that which is heard. They had a direct perception of that which is only indirect. They had if the light was usually only had in the dark. So the difference in phraseology between the Bavli on the one hand and the Shami and the Zohar on the other hand reflects the extent to which they're in the light, the extent to which the Torah penetrates and, and uh, illuminates the world around us. That's that section. Now we know God it says Seilmad. Seilmad means that you have to um, abandon your natural assumptions your natural understanding and see things in a new light. See things in a light which is not natural to you. That's because you're short-sighted. Because you're limited. And you have to break those patterns of understanding to try to appreciate the truth. Now, let's take three examples. Jacob spent... 20 years in the house of love. Lovin tried to cheat him, tried to trick him. Lovin wasn't a nice fellow. He was a nasty fellow. In Egypt, the Egyptians enslaved the Jews, forced them into hard, horrible labor. At one point, made a decree to drown all the newborn male children. Instead of number two. <coughs> then you have Haman and the Holocaust, where the attempt was to wipe out every man, woman, and child. That's not what To murder every man, woman, and child. Haman tried, and in the Second World War, they succeeded in wiping out one third of the Jewish population. Now, if you would rate those threats <coughs> in terms of severity, <coughs> my guess is everybody's intuition, everybody hasn't been primed by the fact that I'm asking the question, everybody's intuition would say that Holland and the Holocaust is the annihilation of Jewish people. There's nothing worse than that. Pharaoh was trying to break us, minimize our reproduction, break our spirit, the extent of murdering the newborn male babies. Lovin wasn't a nice guy, you know, he tried to cheat us in various ways, but couldn't compare with Egypt and certainly couldn't compare with Haman and, and the Holocaust. The Haggadah wants us to understand that that's not correct. That's not correct. That's a wrong expression, wrong understanding. Well, look what it says on 32, 33. Say, 
go out and learn what Logan the Arameans attempted to do with our father Jacob. For Pharaoh decreed only against the males. <coughs> Logan attempted to uproot everything. Pharaoh's decree to murder newborn male Jewish babies was not nearly as bad as Lovon's plan. Lovon's was far worse. Indeed, some commentators say that the reason why we left Lovon and ended up in Egypt, after all, when God told Abraham that he was going to spend 400 years in exile, he didn't say where. The verse doesn't give you a clue where this is supposed to be. And it could just as well have been my lover. But the challenge with lover was too great. We would have been lost. We would not have been able to withstand it. So he sent us to Egypt instead because it was an easier challenge. Indeed, read the verse that the Haggadah cites. As it says, an Aramean attempted to destroy my father and he descended to Egypt to sojourn. The verses juxtaposing these two ideas. Love on the Aramean tried to destroy my father, and my father went to Egypt. I mean, it's not just A and B. The Torah is never written that way. If it juxtaposes, means one is the reason for the other. Aram, the love on the Aramean tried to destroy <coughs> my father, and because of that, he went to Egypt. Because had he had to face love for 400 years, there would have been nothing left. Now, when you look in the verses that describe Lovan, Lovan's behavior, Lovan's statements, it's not exactly obvious that that's what he wanted. Okay, if you read them carefully, if you read them carefully, you could see it. You could see it. My point now is not that whether you could see it in the verses. My point is, so that's what he wanted. So what? So what? He wasn't threatening to murder anybody. He was threatening cultural assimilation. You know, Jacob, you have crazy ideas. But you're living in my, in my uh, country. You're living in my culture. You have your crazy ideas. Your crazy ideas will die with you. And your children and grandchildren and grandchildren will belong to me. They'll all belong to me. They'll fade out. Because your ideas are crazy. Right? How seriously should we take a threat like that? I think our natural, our natural feeling is as long as they're going to leave me alone, as long as they're not going to murder me, as long as they let me have my yeshivas, it's okay. I, they want to put some curriculum in my yeshivas, you know. Okay, so they'll learn biology in the daytime, and nighttime will tell them it's not true. And we'll get around it. We'll, we'll, we'll manage it, you know. Uh, they'll study a Jewish history course in, in university, and they'll tell them that, like, like I studied before I, before I was from, that the Hebrew God is the God of, of, of uh, vengeance, who thunders from the heavens. I, the so-called professor, didn't even open the book to read it. That's all right. You don't have to read books to be a professor. You can just say things that are popular and get away with it. You know, <laughs> I, I have no, no thought of, of, of accuracy. But that's what you'll hear. That's what you'll read. Right? Uh, I had a boy, when I was an undergraduate, a boy came from Blackwish Yeshiva in Brooklyn, which is already a symptom of his weakness. <laughs> and he took a biblical Hebrew course and professor said in the first lecture that Hebrew is the most corrupt of all Semitic languages. By the end of the semester, his yarmulke was gone, he was eating trace. And I 
I corrupt is a technical term in linguistics. It doesn't mean bad or nasty or vicious or criminal. Right? Corrupt means that it's the most changed from the root of, the, of that family of languages, which isn't true either. Right? But he, he was lost. He was just lost. So we, our natural intuition is to downplay this kind of threat, cultural threat, or religious threat. And uh, I've got to say, you've got to go out of that mindset. Look, God took them down to Egypt to avoid the threat of Lovin. Lovin's threat was certainly worse than that of Egypt. I would think of the terrible suffering, 85 or 90 years of slavery in Egypt. And nothing to compare with the threat that, uh, of Lovin. And even in Egypt, within the 210 years, the vast majority of Jews were culturally almost lost. Love was much stronger threat. Anyway, that's that's I think the, on the surface anyway what the uh, Torah means. It says. I mean, the Jews almost, almost lost in Egypt. There were Egyptians. The Chazal say that there are fifty gates of defilement altogether. They had already passed through forty-nine. Forty-nine out of fifty. That's pretty far gone. Are we? Are we better than them? And I said yes last time, you weren't here, I guess. I said last time that God calculated the end, and there were three ways to read the Pasuk for the 400 years, and He made it the shortest period of time because had He waited any longer, there wouldn't have been anything left to say. Right? And uh, we better. I said, no, I better not. Relevant to the Haggadah. Anyway, so that's the first thing that the Haggadah says. And the verse says. It went down with a few people and became a nation great, mighty, and numerous. Now, I want you to understand what's going on in this section of Haggadah. In the heavy print, the bold face <coughs> font, you have quotations from the book of Deuteronomy. And the light, the light font is explanations, almost all of them quoted from the book of Exodus. Now, we should understand what's going on here. We're talking about the story of the Exodus. There's a whole book called Exodus. Why wouldn't you take the story from the book of Exodus? And why are you going to do it? Take a verse from there and explain it from over here, back and forth. Okay, it's true. Jews like to make things complicated because reality is usually complicated. There's got to be some particular reason here. Now, if you look up the verses from Deuteronomy, you will see that they are in the section of first fruits, Bikuri. The farmer comes up from his field and brings his first fruits to Jerusalem and he makes a declaration to the Kohen and this is the declaration that he makes. I think, again, as I've told you many times, it's only on the surface, I'm not telling the depths. Who's reciting the Haggadah? What kind of person is he? Where is he from? What is his life like? So, for hundreds of years, these were Jewish residents of the land of Israel with their own economy, their own uh, army. For 400 years they had uh, their own their own king, but we had in, uh, plus years before that they had a kind of federation of tribes. Almost 800 years, uh, a nation that exists in its land and it's reasonably independent for 800 years is quite a remarkable thing. In history it's not common at all. Who's coming up to the temple? This Jew who says that the Exodus from Egypt is history. That's not where I'm sitting. I'm a successful farmer in Jaffa. I'm a successful farmer in, you know, in the, in the Panhandle. 
Canaan had three crops a year, one of the richest soils on the face of the planet. So the Haggadah meets him. The Haggadah says, yes, we know where you're coming from. You're coming from a settled, secure, peaceful circumstance, and you are recalling the past. We'll see that recalling is not quite right, not quite strong enough when we get there, but that's the position that we're taking at this point in Haggadah. So that's why you have verses from Deuteronomy that talk about Bikurit, first fruits, and then they're explained on the basis of the soaking from uh, from Shmos, um, uh, from Exodus, from yeah. I was thinking, then when you said, the, I was thinking about why you said Selamah instead of Tashmar. Come, I, when I think of come, I think of it as a more of a passive verb that you're saying, you know, uh, come to me. Because we were talking about before that the mitzvah is not to just tell the story, but to experience it. So when I hear the word come, like come to me, he came to me, or come to me is more passive, while go out is more of an active verb. That, that, that makes me think that, oh, go out and experience it. While come is like, come to me, you know, we can talk about it, but when I hear go out, I, I feel like that verb makes, makes me think to experience it more than just to tell it over. Interesting. I mean, they're both active verbs. Well, they're both telling you to do something, but they're both telling you to move, in fact. Right. You're thinking maybe that if I say come, it means we're going to do it together. Whereas right. if I say go out, it's like you can do it on your own. Interesting. I'll think about it. Interesting observation. Okay. Interesting observation. Okay, now, um, let me acquaint you with a fact which may be useful to you. They went to the town with a few people and became a great nation. A nation. Great, mighty, and numerous. How many people went down to Egypt? Seven. 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 And when they left, how many were there? Okay. Something like three million. Let's say, for the sake of the numbers, I'm going to give you two and a half million. Minus the eight, twelve million is that? Oh, so now let's say eighty percent died in the three days of darkness. So if eighty percent died and two and a half million went out, a little math now, how many were there before the three days of darkness? Twelve and a half million. Twelve and a half million. Is it reasonable? Is it reasonable to go from seventy? to two and a half billion in 210 years let alone 12 and a half billion okay those who are shaking their heads are shaking their heads because they've never tried it but if you sit down with a little calculator you can do this on your watch well my watch anyway you just get a little calculator and you will discover the following there's 70 people actually it's 140 but leave that out for now because it doesn't count the wife correct it's really 140 but leave that out for now suppose you start with 70 210 years is seven generations. Because when you reproduce, you usually reproduce, women reproduce, all reproduction depends on women, right? The men are mostly irrelevant. <laughs> Only women can have children. That's why when Jacob sent the bride to his brother, he sent 10% males and 90% females. That's how you increase your flock. That was more males, it was more females. Okay, back to work. So now, let's say it's 70. I don't mind. Uh, well, uh, I need 140. Let's suppose uh, yes, you have seven generations because a generation is 30 years. A woman gets, uh, gets birth roughly between the ages of 20 and 40. How many children, on the average, must a person leave behind to go from 70 to 2.5 million in seven generations? The answer is 4.6. 
all. Raise 4.6 to the seventh power and multiply it times 70 and you will get two and a half million. Ah, but what about 12 and a half million? All you need is 5.6. You see, those exponents are terrific. You know, when you, when you raise it to the seventh power, you know, a little difference here makes a gigantic difference at the end. Try it. Try it. I did it decades ago when all I had was a calculator, you know. I didn't have a program with a computer where you could solve, it, solve an equation. And, and that's what it turns out to be. So it is not the spectacularly, extravagantly impossible figure that you think. Okay, it's true. If the average is, let's say, 5.6, so that means that, that per couple it's 11. 11 children is a lot. Especially in ancient times, you have infant mortality and all the rest. But you don't need some extravagant nace. I mean, today we have the families of 14, 15, 16, and 18 kids. We have, uh, I know such people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's on the large side of the spectrum. You don't need, in particular, there's a midrash that says they gave birth to six at a time. You don't need that midrash to justify the numbers. Uh, the midrash may very well be true, unless it's, unless it's not taken literally by the commentators. But you don't need it. It's, the midrash is not coming to solve a numerical problem. Because without that, the, the numbers aren't the, aren't the difficulty. And by the way, when I did this calculation, uh, actually, I, I cheated a little bit in the wrong side because I ended up with 12 and a half million for the last generation <coughs> alone. But uh, the previous generation didn't entirely disappear. And what went out were two or perhaps part of three generations. Right? People don't die that fast. Two of them died at the age of 40. Right? So... Uh, Really, I'm figuring low. Okay, so, so when it became numerous in that way, you don't need to imagine a spectacular uh, open miracle. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, if you're slaves, though, don't slaves generally have less regression rates? Like, you're slaves. Okay, now, you have to know when that took place. Um, of course, it, it took place, the commentators say there were about 85 or 90 years of slavery. Right, so the first, um, well, all the time that Je- Joseph and his whole generation lived, there was no slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's the growth, so it's about eight, five, nine years of, uh, of slavery. Now, of course, that's the last two or three generations, and that's where the, the, most of the increase is going to take place. But still, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to see a visible, uh, a visible miracle that, you know, that the women are giving birth to 20 children and, uh, you know, a shot, and, you know, it's just not, not necessary. Yeah. Doesn't that feel that the population boom was before the actual, uh, actual slavery? At the time, that, that's why Pharaoh did all the, made all the laws against the, well, the boys. If you, so that really if you, if, if, now, right? well, uh, you're right that there was some significant population increase because that was the motivation. But it also says, um, the more they oppressed them, the more they increased. Right? Um, also as they oppressed them so as they oppressed them they increased even more 
I'm just saying you. I, I, I'm just saying you. You said there must have been a population increase beforehand to justify his part. I agree, but the verse then says that in spite of the affliction, they increased even more. Now, if you want to call it a miracle in his sense, these are oppressed people. They shouldn't have any babies at all. They should be in shock or they should be exhausted all the time. Maybe, but it's not the miracle. It's not the extravagant increase in numbers. Everybody thinks. And everyone must have had hundreds of children and it would have been, you know, a visible, obvious, grand, unheard of miracle. You don't need that for the numbers. The numbers don't require it. Were any babies killed? So it's an interesting question. Um, it doesn't appear that, that any were really... Uh, well, oh, no, I'm sorry. You must have two things. First of all, he told the midwives to kill them secretly. None that I then they they uh, refused to obey the command. Then he commanded his people that they should all be killed. But he made an announcement to all the Egyptians, go and take the babies and kill them. That's right, and to the, that's why when Moses was born, he was born six months early. She could have had him only for three months because they kept track of pregnant women and they tracked when they were when they gave birth. Mm-hmm. Right? But remember, uh-huh. remember what I said before. What did I say before? That's not a test. Yeah. That the only thing that re- re- reproduction depends upon is mm-hmm. females. This is a proof, by the way. This is a proof of what Chazal say. When they say, why were they killing the males? Why did they uh, suddenly decide to kill all the males? The prophecy that, a male that there would be a savior for the Jewish people. They had in their magic, they had a, they had a, a, a uh, a, a prediction that the Savior was going to be born to try to kill him. You can't say that this was an attempt to limit the Jewish population because killing male babies will not limit the population at all. won't have any effect on the population. The only way to affect the population is to attack the females. So that people don't stop to think. If you think about that, you see the Chazal have to be right. It can't be for the point of, of, of putting pressure on the population. Those days especially, they could have more than one wife, so... Every woman could be giving birth, even if you killed ba- uh, males. Okay. Were babies killed? Yes, I assume they were. I assume they were. Right? That's how. Anyway, so I, it doesn't say, but I, I assume that's true. Wasn't there a nutrition involving like a baby that was put into a brick or something? So some babies had to be killed. Yeah, in fact, uh, <coughs> you're right. We mentioned Ramban. says one of the reasons that the Egyptians could be punished for what they did is because they 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 feed them and killing the babies. It, which I was not part of the prediction for that God gave Abraham. Good, okay. Uh, this is all very interesting. We'll have to have some, some more ground. Fine. Now the Haggadah the, will take apart the verse from Deuteronomy, phrase by phrase. He went down to Egypt, <coughs> compelled by the divine decree. In other words, he didn't go down voluntarily. There was a famine and Joseph was already second in command and it was a place to be able to support his family and he went down and tried to set it up in such a way that it would only be temporary. That's the next, the next Vayagar. Lagur means to dwell temporarily. That's why Gir Gir was getting killed. Gir Toshap is just a fellow traveler. Someone there superficially. This teaches that our father Jacob did not send the Egypt to settle, but only to sojourn temporarily. As it says, when the 
five of the sons of Jacob were brought to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said what do you do and they said we have come to sojourn in this land because there's no pasture for the flocks of your servants because the famine is severe in the land of Canaan it's a famine and we have flocks and we can't support our flocks in the land of Canaan but the implication would have been that if the famine reverses and the, and the pasture lands restored we'll go back we'll go back home we're not here to stay please let the servants stay in the land of Goshen The few people, as it is written, 70 persons, your uh, forefathers descended to Egypt, now Shemekai's made as numerous as the stars of the heavens. Twelve and a half million people, I mean, it's a lot, but it's not, in terms of nations, it's not that many people. You know, we always talk about numerous, so it's very numerous, but twelve and a half million people is not that big of a nation at all. Well, first of all, you're talking about twelve and a half million in ancient times. Right. So the world population. Much less. Well, uh, much less. I, I think, now, what did I saw? I saw it from the Almanac. World population until about 300, 400 years ago was about constant. And then it went up very gradually until recently it went up like this. Um, what was the world population? I don't know. I think it was 500 million or something. The entire world population after constant. Six billion. Six and a half billion, yeah. If, if, you, if you wait until tomorrow, it'll be bigger. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I want you to know, it is estimated that with the naked eye in a non-polluted area, you can see something between 10 and 30,000 stars. So if you're talking about like the stars of the heavens, so then it's, right, it's in the right ballpark. Okay. Now, um, We became a nation. That means we had our own separate identity. This teaches the Israelites were distinctive there. Now we're going to be very careful about this. We were a separate identity, but that separate identity was very greatly compromised. Um, On page 37, right in the middle of the page, you see the quotation of Deuteronomy 4.34, has God ever attempted to take unto himself a nation from the midst of another nation? Goy mikerev goy, a nation from the midst of another nation. Hazal's picture here is, is uh, uh, very extreme. Hazal says it's like a, an ubar, a fetus in the womb of its mother. A fetus in the womb of its mother. 
which gets all of its nourishment from the mother, which has no contact with the outside world. It's completely surrounded by the mother. Now, is the fetus a separate identity? Yes. It is a separate identity. I mean, let's make it drastic, right? Imagine that the fetus is male. Okay? The mother's female, the fetus is male. It's definitely a separate identity. But, it can't function separately. <coughs> it has the potentiality of becoming an independent adult, but in its present condition, it can't function as independent. So we became Mitsuyanin Sham, distinct. We became a goy. But it was a goy bekerel goy. A nation, it's the same word goy, right? We, we, we became a nation, but a nation within another nation, like a fetus in a womb. <coughs> That's an indication of what we spoke about before, the fact that they lost their their um, identity, that they that they you know, became assimilated into the Egyptian Egyptian life. But this was a step up though, from when they were. From where? From when? From, well, from the, the land of Israel with other Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? No, no. Definitely not. I guess 50 years before, 100 years before. Why when they, like after, I guess, when they went through all the gates. Well, when did this happen again? Oh, so I, I think you have to picture it this way. While the brothers of Joseph were alive, he was the first to die. Joseph? Yeah. While the brothers were alive, um, of course they were distinct. They were Jacob's children, you know, this upper, upper, upper class who were the family of the second command of Egypt. They were definitely distinct, but they weren't a nation. They weren't a god. They were a family. Right? Family of who knows how many hundreds of people. That's a clan. Now they began to increase in population to the point where you could call them a god. You could call them a nation. And then as they increased to become a god, they also lost their grip on their distinctiveness to the point where the Medrash could say that they were idol worshippers. Right? Now the the Haggadah is telling us a bit of a, a, a kind of a bit of a surprise. Still, they were Mitsuyan. Don't think they were indistinguishable from the Egyptians. They were distinguished. They were a god. There was enough in them to make them a god, but not what they should have been. Not you know. At this point, they were passing through the 49 gates of the Pharaoh, becoming more and more. Uh, polluted by the Egyptian milieu, but they were still a god. Does it say somewhere that we held on to like three things? Yes. The Medrash says, and there's, there's different different uh, versions of the Medrash, different texts of the Medrash, our names, our language, clothing, clothing is, there is really, such a chazal, it's hard to find, but uh, there is such a chazal. Um, there's another one which the other text says, I forget to get it. But if you understand, this is the this is the banner of success, right? Names, language, clothing. That's it. Yeah, you can tell it you. He's the one who can fill the fish, right? You know, uh, uh, when you go into the store, you have you have the kosher section of the store. You, know, you fill the fish over there. You don't know how you can fill the fish in the trade section. Nobody can fill the fish but us, right? Yeah. So you imagine uh, someone from Ukraine coming to America. How can I tell you know? Who the Jews are, where they are, to watch people who buy Jews. That's not a great claim to our national distinctiveness, you know, <laughs> the fact that we're still buying fish. 
I think it has to be defined in Kapichut, socially. You know, if we are regarded as a distinct group, so then, then that would that would make us distinct in that sense. If we aren't regarded as a distinct group, so the eyes of, of I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah. So the whole zikut of the Jews on some nationalistic, very nationalistic characteristics, such as language. Because that's a, a Jew is is far more than that. Correct. That's the tragedy. The uniqueness of a Jew is that it's a com- we're not a, a nation as as a race. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. They lost it. They lost it. That's why the t- Levites were not involved. The Levites were not enslaved. Right? The Levites did. Pres- they didn't have. I'm not surprised at you. They didn't have schools. They were taken out even without schools. They didn't have schools. It's not the development of schools. I'm just a bit confused. Just one thing to clarify. The very reason we became a Jewish nation was that we go, we accept. Okay, there was a promise to Abraham, but we accepted the yoke of uh, of the Torah. That was and 46 that was days after they left. Sure, 46 days after they left. So at that moment, what was the... 46 days later? Who's talking about that? I'm talking about them in Egypt. No, but God, why did God choose us as, as their nation? So it says, I, uh, Moses asked this question of God, and God said to him, they will serve me on this mountain when I take them out. There's nothing in them now that that, that uh, merits for the sake of the future, not because of what they've already done. So from when does it go to work like this? Okay. Uh, uh, you're coming in, you haven't heard all the sherm that I've been giving out for the past three months. Right, so I, I can't do it all now. But well, you're right to make the observation, but this is, a, this is the beginning, this is the starting point. Yeah. This is our ABCs. Right? The Rebbe took us out only because he promised the patriarchs and because we will be able to serve him, but not because of anything we deserve to be good. Yeah. Was the being included in the numbers when they say that these the, the 12 and a half million of the... Yes. Here they are. So, I mean, you can assume that uh, since they weren't enslaved, that they were obviously producing at a normal rate anyway, and they say, hey, our brothers are being, you know, tortured even more, let's have more children. I mean... No. Does anybody know the answer to this? The answer is that the lady was the smallest of the tribe. Recalculate. The lady was the smallest of the tribe. Why weren't they enslaved at all? I mean... Okay, so I'll just oh. tell you. But then, but, you know, at the end of the result, you have to recalculate your thoughts. It's, uh, they were the smallest of the tribe, but they weren't this way. Um, the, um, the way in which Medjur says, how did they instigate of slavery? It just comes to the people who were the family of the second in command, because the second man died, but still, and say, from now on, you're slaves? So what they did was, they had a day of national voluntary labor. And everybody joined in. Everybody joined it. And then they continued it gradually, letting off others and keeping the Jews in. That's the way it was done. And those Jews who felt a kind of need to express their loyalty and gratitude to the Egyptian nation, which houses them and is so faithful to them and so, so kind to them, they started off this voluntary labor. And the Levites said, Baloney, we're not taking part in Forget it. And they wanted it to be quasi-legal. Even the Nazis passed laws. They passed laws and then followed them. They didn't just murder Jews on sight. No, they passed laws and they used the laws to murder Jews. So here, Egyptians also said, you know, we're a, we're a legal society. We do things according to the laws. The laws are structured this and this way. The Levites never bought it, so they couldn't get it. Right? If you got more than 90%, it's good enough. Okay.
Back to work. Great and mighty. Silver vision were fruitful, fruits great, we multiplied, we very, very mighty, the land was filled with them. Now, Rav doesn't really mean numerous. Rav is one of these terms which means sort of big. Um, numerous means something you count. Big can be something you count, big class, which means there are a lot of members in the class, or it can be a big mountain where it's not something you count. It's not a lot of units. What's the difference? Yeah, 33. Here, the Haggadah quotes a, a verse from Ezekiel, which uses a version of Rav, which has nothing to do with numerous, and really nothing to do with big. It has to do with mature. Develop. As it says, I made you. Now here, Rivava, Ketsemech like the grass of the field. Rivava is just a, a poetic way of saying Rav. Rav means big. When you think of grass, do you think of individual blades of grass? You have a lot of grass. <coughs> you must have at least two million blades. Oh, no, it's three and a half million blades. Crown again. Look how close they are together. I have lots and lots of blades of grass. Right? Or do you think of the area that's covered by grass? I have six acres of grass. Six acres. Not counting the individual blades. Counting the area that it covers. Right? So again, I'm not convinced that Rubavah here means Lots and lots of blades of grass. It means I made you big like a large area that's covered. And the plants of the field. And you grew and developed. Became charming. Beautiful of figure. Your hair grown long. But you were naked and fair. And I passed over you, and I saw you downtrodden in your blood. And I said, Through your blood shall you live, through your blood shall you live. This is an unbelievable vision. You're talking about the development of a young woman. She reaches maturity. Beautiful. Charming. Beautiful naked and bare, wallowing in her blood, and he tells her, the Nabi tells her, to your blood you shall live. So it's, it's a little hard. First of all, a woman doesn't wallow in the blood of Nabi. But then maturing and then through your blood you will live. I understand. I understand. Second of all, is he telling her the facts of biology that every woman knows and everyone has known since the beginning of time? You know, why make a big deal out of it? Why would the Cheskel of the Prophet write about it? Furthermore, in context, this young woman that he's describing is developed as a Jewish people. Otherwise, what's the point of talking about it altogether? Who is this young woman? What are we talking about? And the book of Ezekiel is not a text in, in feminine uh, sexual development. Now, the picture here is the Jewish people in Egypt 
who grew and developed but had no mitzvahs. That's what it means to be naked. Naked and bare. You have to explain the two what words. Do you mean they, were they had an inner character, an inner character which, went, which came from the, from the patriarch. And the fact that they were assimilated into the Egyptian uh, uh, surroundings was a, a to, the, to a large extent, was a, was a superficial external covering. Now, the blood that's referred to here is the blood of the Korban Pesach and Brismil. God performed nine plagues. After the nine plagues, he said, look, my plan is that you should leave. Right? But you have to do something. You have to do something. Okay, I, gave, I had nine plagues. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You had no schools. You had no schools. But I did it to you. But you have to do something. You're not getting out for nothing. You at least have to show that you pledge allegiance. And I'm giving you two mitzvahs. Circumcision and the carbon paste sacrifice. And that blood those bloods, and that's why some commentators say it's repeated. I said to you, you show your blood shall live. I don't believe in the verse. The verse in the Cheskel, it only says it once. The Haggadah says it twice. Even though Mary Rebbe said it ends up with four because the Mayach is plural. Okay, but that's a separate thing. Um, that these bloods are going to be your life because these two bloods are the replacement for the fact that you don't have mitzvahs. Now I want you to know that there's a, there's, there's, this is the foundation of an important legal point. There is a penalty in the Torah for a, a serious crimes called curse. Curse means being cut off from God. That crime applies only to prohibitions, to negative commands. It doesn't apply to positive commandments with two exceptions. There are two exceptions. One is Brismila, a person who, according to Rambam anyway, never is circumcised, is punished by Kharis. So I disagree. Okay. But anyway, that's it. He makes it worse. More of serious. And the Korban Pesach, the Paschal Sacrifice. A person who is not involved in the Korban Pesach suffers the penalty of Kharis. Now, for those who don't know, let's see how good your intuition is. I said he's not involved in the Korban Pesach. Which involvement in the Korban Pesach would be necessary to avoid curse, do you think? You see? I have a man here with some experience. It's the slaughtering of it. The eating is not na'ake. It's not relevant. It's the slaughtering. If you are involved in the slaughtering and then, perversely, as the sun goes down, say, I'm not eating it, you're not guilty of curse. You, you don't get the penalty of curse. The mitzvah is the slaughtering and the eating. They are two separate mitzvahs. And for not participating in the slaughtering, for not participating in the slaughtering, the penalty is curse. For not participating in the eating, the penalty is not curse. It's a violation of a commandment. The penalty is not curse. This shows you that when the verse says for the bloods, the list of the bloods, it means the blood baskets. It's talking about the blood. It's talking about the, the sacrifice. 
And that Chazal say, remember that this animal was a sacred animal to the Egyptians. So the very fact that you took it and killed it was the, the main importance. You took, you're, you're declaring to the Egyptians, what we say in modern English, in your face. <laughs> right? Watch! I'm taking the animal four days before they took it and tied it to the bedpost. The Egyptians said, what do you want that for? And we'll slaughter it. We're going to slaughter it right in front of you. We're not going off into the wilderness, like Moses said originally, you know, we'll slaughter it in front of them, won't they stone us? We're going to slaughter it right in front of you. Try to stop us. See if you can do anything. So it's the slaughtering that carries the correct penalty if a person's not involved, not the eating. Yeah. Why, why, what's the close connection to the woman? I mean, like, except it's very flooding, but like, why? why? And you can, you can, you can, they could have somehow shown it another way. Like, why is choose a detail? Like, uh, the woman is chosen on this Yes, I, I, good. it's a good question and a good answer. And, and King Solomon tells, tells us that the right? King Solomon before Ezekiel. Solomon before Ezekiel. Right? King Solomon says the image for the Jewish people is a woman, not a man. Never a man. <laughs> good. So if you do, very good. Yeah. How does that work out with the slaughtering? Every, every Jewish male has to bring one, or you can just like, buy one from like, a group of people? So how does that work out? You have two and a half million Jews. You know, you so from here, the Mark learns the idea of Shlichus because it says, It says the whole of the, of the Jewish community shall slaughter it. And the Gemara says, It's possible that everybody should slaughter it. He has Shlichus also. This is one of the places, a classical place, where you learn sleep from. He does it for me, it's as if I did it. Does that include, like, you know, you have to give them money for it, or they just, just in general, like... Well, uh, no, well, it depends on how it's done. If, if you go and take your animal and say, this is my usually has to buy his way in. Could he get in without buying, I don't know, maybe if he gave him a gift. But you're... He's getting a right to eat it when it's uh, when it's when it's slaughtered, so it becomes part of the group. Yes, yes, no, to the slaughter is done. 